Well, I'd invite you to have your Bible open at that first chapter of Ruth that we read together. Uh, This evening, we're going to consider the first five verses as we look primarily at Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And then those of you who know the story will realise that for a good part after that, all of the focus switches to to Naomi and to Ruth. But let me bring an introduction first of all for this little book. It's a unique book, the book of Ruth. Well, you could say that about every book in the Bible, couldn't you? But it's unique in this way. It mostly follows the life story of two women, Naomi and Ruth. And they are mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Now, that might sound like a recipe for disaster, but the only disaster in this story was actually someone else's doing. It doesn't follow their whole lives, but very significant highlights are brought to our attention. And so this is the story of a family. Just one normal, unremarkable family. It's a story in parts of great human hardship. Many tears will be shed in this story. But it's also a story of God's faithfulness and of his sovereign goodness. It's the story of how a woman who wasn't even a Jew would come to know God's favour and kindness in a most remarkable way to the extent that Ruth's name is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus would be a descendant of this lady, Ruth. And yet when the story begins, she's an unknown, Gentile, Moabite girl. We're going to see the gracious hand of God at work for no other reason than he is good and kind. And he's working out his holy purposes even through a normal family like this. And we'll see a very significant signpost in the Old Testament which points to Christ. Maybe you are part of a very unremarkable family. I think I fit that description. Maybe you're just an unknown nobody who apparently couldn't possibly be of any significance to God. Be careful thinking that way because you are just the type of person that God often chooses to use and to bless. Isn't that amazing to know? Isn't that wonderful to know? Well, let's locate this story, first of all, in time and, not space, place. Time and place. We're told in the opening verse that the story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Well, if you're not too sure of the timeline for the Old Testament, let me give you a very, very basic one. The book of Judges comes immediately before Ruth. If you need to, you only need to turn back one page in your Bible and there is the end of the book of Judges. You'll see it there. Now the time scale for some of the key things in the Old Testament runs something like this. 
the story of Abraham, which begins in Genesis chapter 12 and continues from there. That takes place roughly 2,000 years before Christ was born. The next really significant person, I guess, in Israel's history is Moses, who led the children out of their captivity in Egypt. Well, that says 150, doesn't it? Does it? Should say 1500. There's a zero missing off the end. 1500 BC. So roughly 500 years after Abraham, Moses came along. Then there's the time of the judges. The nation of Israel have been settled in the land of Canaan. Joshua has led them through. Joshua comes before Judges. But then there's this period of roughly 400 years from about 1400 BC when the Judges ruled. Say a little bit more of that in a moment. And Ruth is somewhere during the time of the book of Judges. Now, I've put it quite early on in the time of the Judges. Um, just for the simple reason that um, if you read through the history of all that's going on, um, Ruth later uh, will marry a man called Boaz. And, and Boaz has a very close link to Rahab, who was that harlot in Jericho who was saved when the people first moved into the land of Canaan. Rahab was Boaz's mother. So the story must be fairly early on in the history of the judges, but we can't be certain exactly when. And then following on after Ruth, you've got um, the books of Samuel, that little boy working with Eli in the tabernacle and hearing God calling him in the nighttime. And as Samuel, of course, will be used to appoint the very first king of Israel, Saul, and most notably David in about 1000 BC. So that's roughly the timeline and where Ruth fits into the story, the time of the judges. And if you want to know what the time of the judges was like in Israel, all you need to do is flick back to the very fi final verse in the book of Judges. And there we read, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There is spiritual idolatry and social anarchy in Israel. There's no one in authority other than those individual judges who at different periods through that 400 years, God appoints and raises up to deal with enemies who are attacking them and to bring the people back to the Lord. But other than that, there is no authority in the land. The people in Israel have become a law unto themselves. They have God's word, the books of Moses, but no one's reading it or taking any notice of it. Surrounding nations are causing them no end of trouble. Remember Gideon fighting off the Midianites. Samson against the Philistines. Israel is a place of total chaos. Why? Because Israel has abandoned God, largely. He always has his little remnant. There will be people in there who love the Lord, but as a nation generally, they've abandoned God. And when his people sin against him, God often moves against them. Why would he do that? Well, he does it both to punish them and 
to bring them back to repentance and to restore them to himself, he still loves them. And he wants to bring them back. Sometimes he has to punish them in order to achieve that. So the days of the judges were approximately 400 years and they would end when Samuel, uh, under uh, some constraint from the people, would appoint Saul as their very first king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And Jewish tradition has it that Samuel is the author of the book of Ruth. And it's a remarkable, a remarkable sign of God's mercy and grace in many ways. As I say, Matthew mentions Ruth in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to mention a woman uh, in the midst of all of those men was really not the culturally done thing. But not only is Ruth mentioned there, Rahab is mentioned as well. Such is the extent, you see, of God's mercy and grace, even in the Old Testament, Gentile women, women like that, in those days, that was quite something. We don't perhaps appreciate quite so much today the impact that has. God's grace and mercy is for everyone. It's wonderful, isn't it? Well, following on as it does from the exploits of the judges with its stories of men like Samson and Gideon, real cut-and-thrust, action-adventure-type stories, uh, the kind of stories that little boys love, we're introduced to all the excitement of an unknown family of four struggling to survive in the midst of a famine. Uh, our dear friend... Jeff Thomas makes this observation. The Lord, I can't do his accent, I'm not even going to try. The Lord was also fascinated by this little family confronting its problems and handling its frustrations. There can be no doubt that history, as seen from God's point of view, is something quite different from that history judged from a human perspective there are the aristocrats in England today whose great aim is to live in who's who and to die in the times. Quite like that description. They have their reward. But the reward the Lord gives and those who receive it will be very different from the details provided in who's who and the obituaries in the times. God was fascinated by this particular family as much as he was gripped by the lives of the men and women who were judges in Israel during these centuries and the momentous events that took place in the rise and fall of nations. You've got all those fantastic stories as we might perceive them in the book of Judges, all those great heroic deeds taking place, but God saw this little family and they are not forgotten. He knows all those who are his. And there are two places mentioned in our story. There's Bethlehem of Judah and there is Moab. Well, here they are on a map. The blue in the middle is the Dead Sea, or as it's sometimes known, the Salt Sea, which is called on that particular map. Up to the top, look left, and there is Bethlehem. 
just to the southwest of Jerusalem. And right on the opposite side, down on the right-hand side, is the land of Moab. So Elimelech has taken his family up, probably through Jerusalem, over the top of the Dead Sea, and down its east coast, and into the land of Moab. Probably quite some journey. And that's where they are. So this family currently live in Bethlehem. That's the promised land that we read of in those early books of the Bible. This is the land that Joshua has taken the people into those centuries before. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. But just recently, all the flowing has stopped. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. But there is no bread. Why? Because of Israel's sin. Israel are in covenant with God. He's made promises to them. But there are conditions attached to those promises. They are to love and worship and serve only him. And they're to do it with gladness and thankfulness in their hearts before him. But Israel's turned away from God in sin and idolatry. And immorality. And they can no longer expect God to smile upon them. And to continue to smile upon them. And they can do that no more than a New Testament believer. Can expect that they can continue to sin on the basis that grace abounds. We don't live in a certain way to qualify as God's people. But as God's people, we are required to live in a certain way. We're his children. We're to live like his children. Israel has stopped doing that. Israel is not living God's way. And God has moved in judgment against them. He brings famine upon the land. And Christian friends, don't kid yourself into thinking that if you live your life in open defiance or in open disobedience against God, that God will just ignore it. He won't, because he loves you. And he will seek to correct you and to bring you to repentance and to draw you back to himself. Why? So that a proper relationship can be restored, so that you walk with him once more, because he, he disciplines those whom he loves we're told in the New Testament scriptures. So that's the scene. There's an introduction to the story, if you weren't familiar with this. And that's the, the situation that Elimelech finds himself in with his wife and his two sons. And he makes an obvious and wise choice. Doesn't he? Or does he? Well, we see in verse 1, it's on account of this famine that this little family, under Elimelech's leadership, have decided to move to Moab because there's no famine in Moab and there they can find food. And so, verse 2, off they go. Elimelech, Naomi, Marlon and Kilion. We're given all of their names and I think there's a reason for that. Their names are very significant to the story. That probably shouldn't be a surprise to us, but they are. 
The name Elimelech means my God, a king. The name Naomi means pleasant. And within too long, we'll see the significance of that. Marlon means sickly or illness. And the word kilion means pining. Now, here's a man with two young boys, presumably fairly young. They were obviously below the age for marriage at the time. So fairly young boys. That Elimelech wants his family to have food to eat is a very good thing. What father would not want the same for his children? To many, his decision may seem to have been the only reasonable and sensible course of action. This, surely, was an obvious and wise choice. Take your children to the place where there is food. But there's a problem. For one thing, there's no obvious sign of any turning to God in repentance from Elimelech. There's no obvious sign of calling out to God for help in faith and in trust. In the national crisis hitting every family in the land, he seems to be blind to some of the more important factors that are governing the situation in the nation at that time. One of the things that Elimelech forgets is that the happiness of his children is not the most important thing. Significant, of course. The most important thing? No. These boys are not going to learn from their father that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They're not going to learn that from their dad. Now, why wasn't the land flowing with milk and honey at this time? Because the people had turned away from God and serve other gods. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The famine is a chastening from the Lord. He's saying to them, if you worship other gods, If you worship other gods, I will take your joy from you. I'm not going to let you have joy and prosperity when you're worshipping idols. There can be no blessedness for you whilst you're defying me and rebelling against me. The famine is the word of God to them to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their idols, to repent and to start loving the Lord again with all their hearts and souls and minds. The biggest problem in Israel is not their lack of bread. The biggest problem in Israel is their rebellion and their disobedience. That's their biggest problem. But Elimelech seems to ignore that issue completely. And he takes his family to live in the midst of a pagan nation. And he does so in complete disobedience to the word of God who has forbidden his people any such thing. And it's clearly stated in the books of Moses. And because of his decision and because of his example, his sons will marry Moabite women. And that is in flagrant disobedience to God's word too. Elimelech, you see, was so concerned about his children's temporal and worldly happiness that he ignored the fact that going to Moab would imperil his children's souls. Elimelech 
my God, the King, has gone to a place where there is no knowledge of God, no worship of God, no recognition of God. Elimelech, my God, the King, seems to have lost all sense of his God as King. Elimelech has considered the physical needs and well-being of his family with total disregard for the things of God. Not such a smart move. And so from that, in these opening verses of the book of Ruth, we find a painful lesson to observe. A painful lesson. Elimelech has gone to Moab to escape death. What does he find in Moab? Death. Elimelech has gone to Moab to save the lives of his two sons. But does his disobedience save either of his sons from an early grave? It does not. It's an interesting object lesson. And it's a painful one to witness. How do you make decisions for yourself and your family? It's a question that's been searing my conscience a little bit this last week. How do I make decisions for myself and my family? How much consideration do you give as to what God might have to say on the subject and what God might require of you as one who is his child, if you're a Christian? What are the priorities that are driving your plans and your ambitions? All of these things I'm talking about, they're all issues of the heart. What are the goals and what are the ambitions that are driving your plans and your decision-making. Now, if the question were put directly to any one of us, uh, probably certain noble principles would be offered in reply. Elimelech's would be, I needed food for my boys. But what is God's view of Elimelech's actions? For Naomi, whose name means pleasant, things are not so pleasant anymore in the land of Moab when Elimelech dies. But at least she still has her two boys and they've got married. And for the next 10 years, things seem to be going quite well, don't they? Except you'd expect that by now there were some patterings of tiny feet. There are no grandchildren. Why might that be? And Marlon, whose name is Sickly, is and dies. And so does his brother, Kilion, whose name is Pining. And Naomi is Pining for home. Elimelech's decision seems not quite so smart anymore. The family who were fleeing death are dropping like flies. Now you may have a very legitimate need 
But disobeying God in order to supply it is never going to be the answer. But he was providing food for his children, some may argue. But he was disobedient to me, says God. And he died. And his sons, perhaps influenced by his father's example, and despite that, finding themselves in a country where there are no Jewish girls to marry, decided that they too would disobey God and take for themselves Gentile wives. And then they died, childless. This family line, through Elimelech and his sons, God has terminated it. There will be no more Mr. Elimelech's. There is no heir to take forward Elimelech's name. And that was a very big deal back then. Christian friends, the fact that we are in a day of grace does not mean that we can be lax with God does not mean that we can play fast and loose with God just because of grace. We're his children. He requires our obedience. He requires that we walk in his ways. And that is always the place of greatest joy, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Moab turned out to be a nightmare for this family. It seems to me that Elimelech, for all his good intentions, was just the same as everyone else in the last verse of Judges. He did what was right in his own eyes. But it was a very unwise move. How then do you avoid that? How do you avoid the temptation to do what is right in your own eyes? Well, it's very simple, really. I'm just going to move back a second. It's very simple, really. You turn to the one, the one, who only ever did what was right in God's eyes. You turn to Christ. That's the only solution to sort this problem out in your life and in mine. God's answer to those who only do right in their own eyes, is to turn to the one who only ever did what was right in God's eyes, and that's Christ. You look at Elimelech and you see an obviously bad example to follow. That should cause you immediately to start looking for the correct example instead. And there's only one correct example, and that's Jesus. So look to him to follow him. One of the ways that the Bible witnesses of Christ is by holding Christ up as the obvious answer and solution to all of the problems that God's Old Testament people experienced. There are good examples in the Old Testament that we can follow. There are bad examples in the Old Testament that we're to avoid, but how do we avoid them? Well, we turn from the bad example and we look to the perfect one, who is Christ. That's the solution for us, always. And sometimes, one of the ways that the Old Testament points to Christ is by saying, no, you don't want to be like that. You need to be like him. No, you don't look to them. You look to him. You don't go their way. You go his way. And that's what we need to do. 
You need to place your trust in Christ and walk by faith and not by sight. You need to acknowledge him in all your ways so that he will direct your paths because you're not leaning on your own understanding. You're not doing what's right in your eyes. You're following him and his ways. Now you'll face all kinds of trials and difficult tensions and decisions. But remember that to choose a path that's going to put you into a place of disobedience will not be to your benefit, even if it seems to be going okay in the short term. Let's think of a few examples in conclusion this evening. And as this first little section in the story is about a husband and father who we're about to leave behind before the focus quickly shifts to the women. Uh, let's just think about husbands and fathers just for this evening. It's going to be all about women for quite a few weeks. Some of you will be glad to hear that. What, what might be the modern day equivalent? Let's bring Elimelech into the 21st century. What might the modern day equivalent be for him? Well, here's a Christian man. Let's call him Elimelech. And Elimelech gets a new job in another part of the country. Promotion, big increase in salary, better house, company car, some great holidays in view. His wife's already looking online. So they move. But only after they move do they try to find a suitable church. And they really struggle to find one. And from that moment, the spiritual life of that man and then his family begins to decline. Or worse, in the same kind of scenario, the man has looked for a church already. And he knows there really isn't any suitable church in that location. But he moves anyway. How many issues must that man be valuing more highly than the spiritual welfare of himself and his family to make a decision like that? Well, what about the Christian man who doesn't need to move home, but he's offered maybe a new job, new promotion, and Elimelech realises again he's going to get so many temporal worldly benefits if he takes up the offer. But... There's a lot more responsibility, huge amount of responsibility, lots of pressure. He has to work crazy hours. His young children hardly ever see him during the week. He certainly has no time to get involved in any of the midweek church activities. Even getting to church on a Sunday is a challenge now. How many worldly and temporal things might that man be looking at and in so doing he takes his eyes off his own spiritual well-being and the responsibilities that he has before God for himself and his family and his local church and those things have just never figured in his thinking at all his mind's elsewhere and in all of those cases Elimelech has thought to himself like this but we prayed about it and God's provided this job so it must be his will. 
But actually, God was testing him. Testing his motives. Testing his priorities. Testing his affections. Testing his ambitions. And Elimelech has just spectacularly failed the test. And he says, no one ever taught me to think about it that way. This evening, Elimelech just has.